Okay, I start. Uh, my Israeli friend, Udi Aloni, told me the story of an accident which I think demonstrates better than anything else the ambiguous character of Wagner's antisemitism. A couple of decades ago, he told me he belonged to a group of radical cultural provocateurs <coughs> who, in order to defy the prohibition to publicly perform Wagner's music in Israel, he announced in, a daily, in daily newspapers that they will show in their club, some kind of alternative culture club, the full video in two, three consecutive e evenings of Wagner's ring. They, of course, planned the evening as some kind of uh, drinking party with wild dancing. But then something strange happened. When the hour of performance approached, more and more old Jews, men and women dressed in ridiculously old-fashioned, solemn way of pre-Hitler Germany, you know, with all proper ties and so on, appeared in the club. For them, the public performance of Wagner was not about Nazism, but a remainder of the good old Weimar Germany, where Wagner's operas were a crucial part of their cultural experience. So then what happened was something very strange. What was planned as a provocation that basically Wagner as a pretext of an orgy, out of respect for all these old Jews, it turned into a wonderful event where all these young wild men behaved properly and they really, you, you know, they were shocked, uh, listen to Wagner, they were shocked to discover again to what extent <coughs> Wagner was part of the Jewish German culture. And based on this then I went to check some books on the history of Bayreuth, where of course you learn many interesting things. The one being that Wagner was Hitler's private idiosyncrasy. The ma big majority of the Nazi party was absolutely anti-Wagner because they associated Bayreuth with Wagner's son Siegfried was gay, so they associated Bayreuth with French decadent homosexual influence. Wagner was anathema. Even now, if you look at the statistic of which operas were performed in, mostly on German, in German theaters, and if you take 10 years before the Nazi takeover and 10 years after, 22, 33, and 33, 43. Wagner is the loser, the loser. 30 to 40 percent less in Nazi Germany. You know who were the winners? Verdi and Puccini. They were truly popular. Since Verdi was so popular that Germans had a problem of uh, how can such a good guy not be a German? So since Verdi comes from northern Italy, they invented a theory that he really is a German. So I have a poster reproduced at home uh, from, I don't know, late 30s, where it is announced, you know, they Germanize the name Giuseppe Joseph, Joseph. Verdi, Verdi, you know, it's green. And you have Nabucco and the Oper from Joseph Green, and so on. <laughs> directly, not to mention our beloved Puccini, whom nobody suspects, but you know what was the last letter Puccini wrote before his death in 24 or 23 in Switzerland. Congratulations to Mussolini. You know that in 24, I think, there was the last political crisis in Italy before Mussolini took over. Uh, uh, the last independent uh, socialist member of parliament was found dead after being brutally tortured 
And there was still minimum of decency, a kind of public outcry in Italy, and there was Mussolini was under such public pressure that there was a true danger that he will have to step down. And then, of course, as always with totalitarian leaders, you can count on intellectuals to support you. No, I mean Luigi Pirandello, D'Annunzio, and Uccini, all of them came, came to help. So, uh, uh, again, the minimum we can say is that there was another Wagner. I had another, myself, strange experience with Wagner. In 1995, I participated at a conference on Wagner at Columbia University in New York. It was this typically politically correct postmodern conference where the majority of participants exceeded each other in the art of unmasking the anti-Semitic, proto-fascist dimension of Wagner's art. Then, after all this usual orgy, a member of the public asked a wonderfully naive question. So, if you, if all you, the participants, you are saying is true, if anti-Semitism is not just Wagner's private idiosyncrasy, but something which concerns the very core of his art. Why then should we listen to Wagner at all today? I mean, if all this is true, if you read critics, how it's all about <coughs> laying the ground for fascism and then all this reading, how, I don't know, all the bad guys are really figures of Jew and so on and so on, then what does this mean? Why do we perform Wagner if this is true? The, uh, 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 in, in other words, shouldn't we feel guilty at listening to Wagner? Isn't Wagner kind of a prohibited pleasure? The embarrassed participants, with the honorable exception of one, I for, forgot his name, he's a well-known German Wagnerian theoretician who is absolutely anti-Wagner. His position is one should bomb Bayreuth and one should totally prohibit performances of Wagner, they replied to this confused version, no, no, we didn't quite mean that, Wagner nonetheless wrote wonderful music, you just have to be aware of, and so on and so on, a totally unconvincing compromise, even worse than the standard aestheticist answer. Wagner as a private person had his defects, but he wrote music of incomparable beauty, so in his art, there is no trace of anti-Semitism. This is the, I think, way to simplify it, uh, Barenboim position. At this very conference, Barenboim gave a talk, Daniel Barenboim, where again, his line was <coughs> private deviation. Absolutely no traces of it in Wagner's music. So, you will ask me, how do I want to pull my trick? Like, uh, rehabilitate Wagner, but is it that then, my good friend, I mean it ironically, Adam Kirsch in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, was right against me that I am anti-Semitic or what? No. Here is my formula. First, the first thing to do is to reject the historicist readings which try to bring out the contextual true meaning of various Wagnerian characters and topics. <coughs> For example, uh, you learn, and of course you can find all these cultural associations, that the key figure of the last opera of the Ring, Getter Demerung, The Twilight of Gods, Hagen, that Hagen, because he's pale, kind of a passive, is really a masturbating Jew. That the wound of the King Amfortas, you know, the wounded Fisher King in Parsifal, is really syphilis, and so on and so on. So the argument is that 
Wagner was mobilizing historical codes known to everyone in his own time. For example, when a person stumbles in his operas, sings in cracking high tones like Beckmesser in Meisterzinger, or makes nervous gesture, the idea is everybody knew this was the portrait of a Jew. However, <coughs> I don't mean this in any idealist way of eternal art, but I, I claim, is this the right logic? In, in the sense of, the, I, I dispute the worth, the relevance of this kind of historicist contextualization. I am here very traditional, even Marxist. You know, when Marx says, apropos uh, uh, Odyssey, Iliad, and so on, that the true problem is not to see the culture out of which they grew, but why they are eternal, why they charm even us today. I think that the definition of great art is that it can be reinvented at every epoch again. This is why, for example, Shakespeare is great. You have Shakespeare the way it was done. You have romantic Shakespeare, you have classicist Shakespeare, you have modern Shakespeare, and so on and so on. It's, it survives different contexts. And here Wagner, I think, won triumphantly. That is to say, it all started already with Nietzsche, Wagner's great critic, who was the first, I think, to perform such a decontextualization, which works formidably precisely with Ring. Namely, for Nietzsche, Wagner was no longer even when he criticizes Wagner, the poet of Teutonic mythology, of bombastic, heroic grandeur, but the miniaturist Wagner, the Wagner of hystericized femininity, of delicate passages, of bourgeois family decadence, and so on and so on. Uh, so, again, I think that we should look in this sense, not in Habermasian sense, Wagner as an unfinished project. He proposed a certain basic musical stage and so on frame. And there is more in this frame than in its historicist contextualization. Why? Because I think, now come two of my, how should I put it, mottos. First, if you look closely at this contextualization, I'm not saying we should ignore all that. It's obvious that, for example, in Meistersinger, Wagner in the figure of Beckmesser is making fun in a very brutally racist way of uh, Jewish music. That, that allegedly bad Beckmesser song who loses the singing context at the end of the opera is again a very bad taste, even parody of, uh, of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish uh, religious music. No, I'm saying something else. That probably unknown to himself, whatever you can say about Wagner, he was undoubtedly a disgusting person privately and so on. But what comes against it is not his unique, uh, eternal greatness. No, I'm more precise here. I think that simply, and I, we don't need any, even any very elaborate deconstructionist, uh, complex reading and so on, that in a much simpler way even, you can establish that, pathetic as this will sound, that his work is already an undermining an answer to his own anti-Semitism. That he is doing not only something different, but exactly the opposite in his work. The proof, just very, in a very simplistic way, then we will go in details. 
you have two types of persons in his work who can count as caricatures of Jews. One are these minor, slightly ridiculous figures like Mime and Alberich, you know, it's kind of a small guys, nervous, making too many gestures, uh, who are obviously portrait of uh, uh, port uh, ridiculous anti-Semitic portraits of Jews. And in the version out of which I will show you the clips, uh, Patrice Chéreau and uh, Pierre Boulez version, centennial version of Wagner's Ring, there you can even see, uh, I mean, Chéreau uh, did something which is even a little bit too vulgar for my taste. In the confrontation that you will see between Siegfried and, and Alberich, he even directly Paints Albrecht as this kind of a, from the Holocaust or ghetto, ghetto, impoverished Jew. <coughs> uh, there is, okay, a clear argument Wagner was making bad taste, bad taste anti-Semitic jokes. There is only one problem here. Without any doubt, it's clear from Wagner's letters, reactions, these uh, caricatures of Jews are always self-caricatures of Wagner himself. He was like that. A small nervous guy jumping around and so on and so on. Even more, precisely in the scene that I will show it to you later, of Siegfried confronting Alberich, the way the scene is done, the works, the works are practically the works of a, a German skinhead racist uh, attacking some, some, I don't know, some Turkish gastarbeiter or foreigner. It's like you are getting all my nerves disappear, I would like to squash you and so on and so on. Now, this, but and I, I, I am quite shocked how people do not notice the other part <coughs> argument. That there is a central Jewish figure in Wagner, but my God, it's the hero, it's the main character, it's the wanderer, it's the, the center. You, if you look at the zero level Wagnerian figure, it's an undead guy because of some terrible past crime, he is condemned not to die. That's the typical Wagnerian position. That he is looking for a woman, usually, to be ready to sacrifice herself so that together they can die. This undead, you have this, like, like Kafka, the factory doctor, this strange wound which doesn't cause you to die but prevents you to die. Incidentally, this is why I think Wagner has, uh, was the first to formulate much more than Schopenhauer uh, what Freud meant already before Freud, what Freud meant by death drive. <laughs> death drive is not what is usually attributed to Wagner, this boring, stupid Schopenhauerian notion of oh, what a hail and pain, pain life is, let's just disappear into nothingness. No, death drive is eternity. Death drive is that ongoing suffering which prevents you to die. The big Wagnerian problem is how to finally be able to die, to escape this undeadness. And as it is totally clear from the first figure, Fliegen the Hollander, the Flying Dutchman, whom Wagner himself called Achaswer des Oceans, that is to say, uh, the figure of the wandering Jew, to up to the end, okay, the, at, at the very end, it's the king himself, on Forkas, who is the Jewish figure, not the enemy. The enemy, Klingshoff, the bad magician is, sorry if this will sound today even more politically incorrect, but it's clearly an, uh, an Arab figure, if you want to locate it. it uh, in, in, uh, in Ring, Wotan, 
Odin, the father of gods. You know, after everything goes wrong, he just wants to die and turns into Wanderer, literally called Wanderer. In Siegfried, Wotan is no longer called Wotan, but Wanderer, again, a clear figure of wandering group. So you, if you just take into account this kind of stuff, you see again that you get a totally different disposition. Next thing we should do, it's absolutely crucial. Uh, here one should be critical even to Adorno. Uh, it's, uh, how to put it? It's especially important with Wagner. One should read Wagner the same way as one should read Hegel, I claim. Not to do what often philosophers do, take a couple of so-called leading thoughts, you know, Hegel, subject mediates, or all objectivity, absolute idealism, and so on, and then attack at this time. They should be both Wagner, Hegel should be read in detail, Wagner should be listened in detail. And if you really listen what he does in his operas, you will discover that he simply doesn't follow his program. All that stuff of Gesamtkunstwerk and so on, organic dissolution and so on. I will try to improvise a little bit about it later, how this works even at the most elementary level. If people usually take Tristan, Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, as two lovers disappearing into the night, finding ultimate happiness in annihilation. But my God, look at the opera. That's exactly what doesn't happen in Tristan. What happens is that the encounter is missed again and again. Tristan is a kind of a comical reworking where one tries to die, it doesn't. When one dies, another one dies and so on. You know precisely what was the big scene of the 19th century. This, like in Norma, they sing. Bellini is Norma, Moriam in Siena. Let's die together ecstatically. This precisely doesn't, doesn't happen in Wagner. So here is my very evil reading of Adorno. When Adorno tries to dismiss uh, Wagner as the beginning of fetishization, which, like Wagner, the first step towards Hollywood, almost. Uh, the idea that Wagner's light motives are the points of this aha, simplistic recognition, which is the first step towards the disintegration of this ideal organic unity of music, uh, which you find in Mathieu. That poem, Wagner is the beginning of commercialization, and so on and so on. I claim that, Ador that this attack on Wagner by Adorno, this aspect, Adorno's, sorry, Wagner's fetishism of light motives, where you have again this, the beginning of Hollywood fetishism, the, the beauty or the imposing power of light motifs uh, blinds us for the, for the complex structural network of a work, the first step towards fetishizing elements. Uh, I think that uh, it must have been, I spoke with some followers of Adorno who have the same suspicion that Adorno was maybe unknowingly to himself, basically criticizing himself. It's exactly Adorno, I claim, who is doing this, right? If you read Adorno, you can see how, although he wants, if you read his, uh, I think they are basically failures, it doesn't work. The ideal Adorno are short texts, like not in Sugi literature and so on. But when he wants to do a bigger systematic work, like aesthetic theory, negative dialectic, he is there, too Wagnerian in this caricatural sense. It's like an unending melody, motives flow, 
But then Adorno had a problem. He even was aware of it from some diaries. He couldn't resist the temptation of doing some pseudo-deep paradox. He was so fascinated by some provocative thought, like, you know, for example, like in Dialectic of Enlightenment, where he says uh, Hollywood realizes Kant's theory of knowledge and so on. This which function, I claim, precisely as what he, what he attacks Wagner for. This blinding or, uh, uh, or psychoanalysis is most true, is most true at its, uh, when it is excessive and so on, in its exaggerations and so on and so on. I think that this was Adorno's tension. What he wanted to do was this kind of organic paratactic flow, but effectively he was regressing into this kind of a fetishism of, of course, not light motives, but let's say this kind of a provocative proverbs insights, which can then be uh, uh, quoted and so on and so on. So again, it's absolutely crucial to give Wagner a chance, I claim, and to look at what he really is doing. Uh, and again, we discover here some uh, incredible things. Uh, for example, let me return just briefly to this figure exclusively for political reading of Wagner. I think the authentic greatness of Wagner's ring is that what happens, of course, we will not have time to go into that, what happens in, in the Twilight of Gods, in, I think the crucial figure there is the figure of Hagen, which plays a central role already in the Nibelung myth. Hagen is this evil plotting character who kills Siegfried, the hero. The way Wagner stages, and this is nicely emphasized in Chero Boulet's staging, the way Wagner presents uh, Hagen is not any kind of uh, 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 masturbating Jew or whatever, but a proto-fascist populist leader. Wagner saw it already at that point. You have the weak king, Ginter, and the populist, it's a wonderful scene, we don't have time to see, for example, uh, half an hour into Act 2, this call to men of, by Hagen, gathering the crowd, the mob, extreme brutality. Wagner saw it. Wagner was the first, I think, to discern the contours of a new, of a new post-traditional, post-traditional uh, right-wing uh, authoritarianism. So, uh, how then? Let's go on. How then to read Wagner? First, I would like to start with another problem. Uh, today, and I like this if it's done properly, today often in the operas we have numerous attempts to stage then classical operas, not only by transposing them into a different setting, like, I don't know, Così fan tutte in today's era, Mozart's Così fan tutte, but also to change some basic facts about the story. And I think that such interventions often don't work, but they often do work. I think that maybe often even they are the clue to Wagner. Sometimes you have to change the explicit story a little bit in order to get at what Wagner was aiming at without being aware. I quote this a couple of times in my books. My ultra example is, of course, Tristan, Jean-Pierre Ponel's version, where probably 
you know what happens, the story you know. What happens here is that in Act 3, it's not that, you know, Tristan mortally wounded, waited for Isolde, Isolde comes, then they die, but it's staged so that it appears that as if Tristan dies alone. The Isolde who comes is just Tristan's, uh, Tristan's the dying, the, the hallucination of the dying Tristan. And I think it works perfectly, because if you listen really closely to what is maybe Wagner's greatest act, the act three of Tristan, you can see how this famous Liebestod, death, ecstatic death of Isolde, the last five minutes song, is really just a culmination of, of Tristan's long 50 minutes almost dying. It is as if the problem of Tristan is that he is waiting for Isolde to come, not in order to, to, to live, but in order to be able to die. This is why he cannot die. But then the only way, since she doesn't come, and I think this is a wonderful rewriting of the myth, that simply, for Isolde, this was just a brief affair. She stayed with her husband, no, and so uh, Tristan had to die alone. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, such a change, I think, has an effect of uh, revelation. Uh, so, again, as I already hinted at, it's crucial with Wagner to... Uh, another, sorry, another mistake to be avoided by Wagner is to uh, ignore the story, what goes on on the stage. Wagner himself, as it was often the case, was the first idiot here. It's in a well-known anecdote when a friend uh, a lady friend of him was watching the Flying Dutchman at Bayreuth. Wagner approached her from the back and put hands over her eyes and said, forget about the stage, just go into the spirit of the music, listen to the music. This, I claim, is exactly what you should not do. I, I claim that, uh, that here Wagner was already pretty modern and anti-romantic, basically, because in Romanticism, the music is the truth, as it were. You know, like, characters do whatever they do, but music knows more. In this sense, I claim even Mozart, with his irony, is more romantic, although Romanticism only begins a little bit with, more, with Mozart, more romantic than Wagner. Because in, Va because in Mozart, music is the truth. You have this, I don't know, just take Cosifan Tutte, where you know, the two couples, the men are, are seducing women, it's all a mockery, a joke. But in music, they show that love is the true, the true one. There's people, you learn more than what goes on in music. With Wagner, I think it's the opposite. We shouldn't, the usual idea of Wagner is this, uh, how do you call it, uh, uh, Schopenhauerian idea. What happens in reality, representation, speech, it's just foreshadowing, again, as Schopenhauer would have put it, representation. But the true rhythm of life, the true life substance is music, this ecstatic identification with music. Although Wagner himself sometimes took it like this, but I think this is not a correct reading. I think that precisely when you relate music to what goes on in the scene, you can see how the structure is, as a rule, in Wagner, a much more modern, in modern sense, ironic 
one. It is that music is basically staged as a as the fantasy illusion which goes on, insists and covers up the misery of what goes on. So, for example, in, in Tristan, it would have been much more productive, I think, to read Tristan as a kind of a compromised petty bourgeois small love affair, and the music is the myth. You know, like, this, is the, this was already, and Nietzsche was right here, Nietzsche's accusation against Wagner, that Wagner thought he is talking about heroes, but you know this famous uh, uh, phrase of uh, Nietzsche of how, uh, if you look closely behind uh, Wagnerian heroines, Bonhilde, <coughs> and so on, you discover Madame Bovary and these hystericals, more bourgeois wives. At the artistic level, I think Wagner knew it. So basically, you should read music in all this pathetic immersion, eternal death, let's uh, disappear in, in, in the void of primordial abyss or whatever. You should read this as a melodramatic comment belied by, belied by, by what goes on. What goes on is often a comedy. The, mod the model of comedy in opera is, for example, if you know it, Verdi's Trovatore. I mean, it's one of the most, I love how much total bullshit you can sell as a libretto of the opera. You know what's the basic plot of Trovatore? That an old uh, gypsy woman wanted to revenge herself on some rich guy and wanted to throw this guy's son into fire, but she threw the wrong guy into the fire, no, and so on. And then, you, and then uh, in Il Trovatore you have this totally ridiculous ending where in the last two minutes, like four or five things happen, this person comes, kills another person, another, and, but, but isn't the very ending of Wagner's Tristan almost the same? One ship comes, they fight, another ship, it's, it's for a brief moment you are back into ridicule. And I think again this, that uh, this, this is how we should read Wagner. The music is the emotional, phantasmatic envelope whose function is to render palpable, palpable the bitter pill, the bitter pill delivered by works and action. Women getting killed or abandoned and so on and so on. Okay, now, nonetheless, let me do, I'm sorry it will be, if it will be a little bit boring, but we have to go through this. I will try to make my point with the finale of Götterdämmerung, the Twilights of Gods. It's the most bombastic, the biggest of them all. The finale where, after a second, after Siegfried's death, Brunhilde, his true love, in this big, it's a Wagnerian death. You must be aware, it's even pretty short for a Wagnerian death. It's just a 15 minutes, you know. The true Wagnerian death is 15 minutes. It's Tristan and so on. Uh, <coughs> so, uh, as it is well known, Wagner oscillated between different <coughs> text works of the finale. Even, in a way, the final version of the opera has two endings, basically. Siegfried's death is already an ending, and then Brunhilde's self-immolation. So, as we know, finding an appropriate conclusion for the ring caused Wagner immense difficulty. His ideas for the end changed several times as his political and philosophical views evolved. 
The story of this change is, is well known. In the first written project, the Nibelung myth as sketched for a drama from 1848, Siegfried and Brunhilde rise above Siegfried's funeral pyre to Valhalla to cleanse Wotan, father of gods, of his crime and to redeem the gods. There is here no suggestion that gods are to be destroyed or whatever. It's simply a kind of a redemption of them all. In a new version then, written a year later, under the name Siegfried's death, Brunhilde's final speech also stresses the cleansing effect of the hero's Siegfried's death. Quote, Hear then, you mighty gods, your guilt is abolished. The hero takes it upon himself. The Nibelung's slavery is at an end, and Alberich, the chief of Nibelung's, this exploitative dwarfs, shall again be free. The ring I give to you, wise sisters of the watery deeps, melt it down and keep it free from harm." End of quote. So here is still some kind of general reconciliation. Then, in 1851, Wagner developed the story backwards, adding a long prequel consisting of the events staged in Rheingold at Valkyrie and expanding the role of Wotan, the father of gods who is now the central figure. In the new ending, gods achieve redemption, but this time they have to die, only in their death. Brunhilde's final speech now reads, quote, fade away in bliss before the deed of man, the hero you created. I proclaim to you freedom from fear through blessed redemption and in death, end of quote. Next version, written a year later, shows the traces of Wagner's passionate debates with Bakunin, as well as of his study of Ludwig Feuerbach. In it, the Bakuninian notion of Russian revolutionary anarchists, of the purifying role of radical destruction, is combined with two basic insights of Feuerbach. Gods are the construction of human minds, and sexual love of a couple has primacy over all other human endeavors. In this Feuerbachian ending, Brinkhilde proclaims the destruction of gods and their replacement by a human society ruled by love. Quote, no, not gods or gold, nor glittering, uh, uh, no, no, not goods or gold, nor glittering gods, not house, nor hall, not splendid display, not broken bonds of treacherous treaties, nor arrogant customs adamant law, blissful in gladness and sorrow, love alone shall endure." End of quote. In 1856, Wagner again rewrote the ending under the influence of his discovery of Schopenhauer and of his reading of Buddhist texts. This Schopenhauerian ending, which focuses on resignation, at the illusory nature of human existence and on self-overcoming through the negation of the will, found its most explicit expression in the following new lines of Brunhilde. Quote, Were I no more to fare to Valhalla's fortress, do you know whither I fare? I depart from the home of desire. I flee forever the home of delusion. The open gates of eternal becoming I close behind me now. It's really kind of a vulgarized Dalai Lama. To the holiest chosen land, free from desire and delusion, 
the goal of the world's migration, redeemed from incarnation, the enlightened woman now goes. The blessed end of all things eternal, do you know how I attained it? Grieving love's profoundest suffering opened my eyes for me. I saw the world end. End of quote. Then, after much deliberation, Wagner decided not to set these works to music, although they appear in some published version of the libretto. Why? As a rule, this omission is interpreted not as a sign of Wagner's abandoning Schopenhauer, but as a proof of his artistic sensibility. The idea is, by the end of his composing The Ring in 1874, Wagner realized that the music, not works, should deliver the final message. So the idea is, again, he didn't want to be too explicit, like, why redouble the message when it's already, you know, as they put it in one of the lowest moments of Marxist aesthetics, Friedrich Engels, that only the vulgar artists say explicitly the message. With the truly great art, the message should be embedded in the situation itself. Incidentally, I'm totally opposed to it. Look at Brecht. He was the greatest dramatist of the 20th century, and if anything, the explicit message is like bombarded, repeated endlessly again and again. Uh, but I claim this is not the case. Uh, this is not what happens. My thesis will be that the way it is composed effectively, the ending of Wagner's ring, you get another message. And here I want to rely on a wonderful book that I discovered quite by chance, published recently, two young British guys, pupils of Bernard Williams, Philip Kitcher and Richard Schacht, Finding an Ending, Reflections on Wagner's Ring. They elaborated this point. I follow them here. So let me recapitulate the problem. As to its ideological content, the ending of The Twilight of Gods oscillates between three main positions, designated by the names of Feuerbach, Bakunin and Schopenhauer. The reign of the ending, this catastrophe, should be the reign of human love, it's a catastrophe for gods, revolutionary destruction of the old world, or Schopenhauer, fake Buddhism, resignation, withdrawal from illusory reality. Uh, because of these oscillations, then, it is not clear how are we to conceive the crowd of men and women who, as it says in the libretto, in deepest emotion, witness the final destruction of the world in fire and water. Who are they? Do they really embody a new liberated society? Because as you will see at the very end of the ring where all disappears, people, ordinary people, humans remain and just stare. Who are they? The change from early revolutionary to mature Schopenhauerian Wagner is usually conceived as the shift from the humanist belief into the possibility of revolutionary change, that is to say, from the belief that our reality is miserable due to contingent historical reasons, to the more profound insight into how reality as such is miserable. So the only redemption resides in withdrawing from reality into the abyss of the night of the world. But I claim, again, this doesn't happen in ring, effectively. Such a reading doesn't cover what effectively happens. 
So now this will be Don't Be Afraid, the longest clip. I will play you the last five minutes. And if you are allergic to Wagner, it will be torture. The last five minutes of the twilight, where you have Brynhilde doing all this Teutonic stuff and so on. Okay, to evoke a little bit more sympathy, just beware that Brynhilde is sang by Gwyneth Jones, who is uh, from Wales. So we are in your country here, nonetheless. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, how, how is this? Be especially be attentive to the orchestral music which, of which the last two minutes are composed. It's such a mixture of motifs that the usual reading is a very cynical one. Even Adorno subscribes to it. It's that Wagner simply didn't know what to do. It got all confused in him. Is it Feuerbach? Is it Schopenhauer? Is it Buddhism? Am I still... So that he did, he escaped into the beauty of music. His idea was, what does this mean? Let's just, in a purely formal way, produce an effect of death. Let's just throw all the big motives there and I don't know what it is, but it will sound very deep if I do this. <laughs> no. So it is something like, if you know a little bit, the music of the above-mentioned Mussolini follower, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, Joseph Kerman, in his music, opera and drama, he cannot stand uh, uh, Puccini, has a wonderful reading of uh, the very ending of Tosca. You know, the biggest hit from Tosca is this, El Luceban Lestele, Cavaratossi aria. And at the very end, after she jumps down, you hear with all bombastic duty of the orchestra this melody again. And Kerman's description is that, again, he didn't know what to do, so he tells himself, ah, let's simply use again the most effective melody to make it an, an effective ending. So the idea is Wagner did the same. But uh, not quite, I claim. So now, please, suffer for, and I hope, ah, 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 perfect. Suffer for five minutes, and we will see.
No, here you should be careful. This is the Rhein-Maidens motif, natural innocence. This is Valhalla motif, the grandeur of the rule of law. This is the crucial motive, so-called redemption through love. survivors just staring into okay, okay. so again uh, in the orchestral part which concludes this uh, which ends the twilight we have again the all-encompassing motive. We will see precisely where we hear it before of this so-called redemption through love, a motive which incidentally is heard only once at the end of the second opera uh, of the Ring, Valkyrie. And then it is as if this moment of redemption through love encompasses, provides the background for two, three other motives. Rhine maidens, which means innocent playfulness of natural world, the Valhalla Fortress of Gods motif, 
a motive which is supposed to render the dignified majesty of the rule of law and the motive of Siegfried, the free hero. The big question is what kind of love is asserted at the end by Brimhilde? Again, my thesis is it's not sexual love. It's not the love of a couple. In order to answer this question, I think one should locate this finale into the totality of Wagner's ring, which should be read, I will do this on purpose in a very old-fashioned way, uh, as, a, as a series of what we may call existential projects. And I think, again, I'm not kidding here, as communists we should ask this fundamental question, very stupid one, what makes life worth living? What makes life meaningful? First, the first, uh, the opera begins with it, the first choice is that of Rhine maidens. This would be the path of some naive westernized Taoism or what? Against corrupted civilization, enjoy the playfulness of natural life. Then we have Wotan's choice, which is, to put it in Kierkegaard's terms, the leap from the aesthetic to the ethical, the rule of law imposed on innocent nature. From Valhalla, Wotan wants to rule the world, bringing peace and justice to it. The attempt fails, this was clear to Wagner, because of the compromises Wotan has to commit. These compromises are more complex than it may appear. They concern not only the well-known topic of illegitimate violence that grounds the rule of law, not only the notion of the rule of law disturbing the innocence of the spontaneous natural life. Furthermore, a crucial part of Wotan's tragedy is that he has abandoned love in the service of law. Another part is that along the way to the end of Second Opera Valkyrie, he relinquishes everything that is most precious to him. After sacrificing everything for the one thing that really matters to him, Wotan discovers that he thereby lost precisely this one thing. This most precious thing is embodied in Brunhilde, Wotan's preferred daughter. And his not only political, but also ethical breakdown is rendered in his long monologue in front of Brunhilde in the second act of Valkyrie, the second opera. In the ring, we should also remember, the source of evil is not Alberich, this bad guy who at the beginning of the ring in Rheingold steals the gold from Rhine maidens. No, the source of evil is uh, not Alberich's renouncing love. You know how uh, 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 Rheingold begins. Alberich, the poor, ugly, proto-Jewish figure, wants to play erotically with three Rhine maidens who are, it's very clearly done with Wagner. He was aware of this, that uh, we should look at Alberich with sympathy. He just wanted to play with girls, and the girls are very cruel, mock him, and then gold is disclosed. And then the girls tell, he asks the girls, what is this, the gold? He asks them, how can I get it? The girls say, only if you renounce love. He renounces love. But it's crucial to learn that Wotan did the same. Succumbing to the lure of power, he gave preference to power over 
love. This is all the previous story why he lost one eye, uh, cutting off the ash tree, the wisdom, and so also denaturalizing the world. So we have this simple opposition. On the one hand, natural balanced order, natural innocence, the rule of law. The rule of law for Wagner is, of course, always stained with a primordial crime. He knew what this uh, is. Uh, Wotan's problem is to use Benjamin uh, mythic violence. He was aware that you are so much compromised so that the rule of law necessarily uh, ends in crime. And it, it is because of this that Wotan ends up as wanderer, as uh, this uh, wandering Jew figure. So, when things go wrong, let's not get into how, uh, uh, Wotan breaks down. He just wants to die. And then, as a last act, he gets an idea of... And you know, when Wagner... So, uh, okay, uh, we should be very well aware of what Wagner was striving with when he tried to find an ending to the twilight of God. The point is precisely, is there a way out of this deadlock? On the one hand, uh, you have practically all the existential positions here. You have Alberich, which would be capitalist profiteering, money, and so on. You have Wotan, the rule of law, power. You have natural innocence, innocent, pre-cultural, pre pre-industrial, whatever way of life, all this. It was clear to Wagner that that A, neither industrial capitalism nor any kind of elevated, dignified rule of law, it doesn't work. Is there a way out, a way out of this? It was also clear to him that we cannot return to any kind of natural innocence. And then, now comes the beauty. Uh, the problem of Wotan, he, his idea is to give birth to a hero, to somehow generate a hero, who will be innocent. In a way, Wotan is dreaming about an innocent violence who, from outside the law, will be able to kill off the gods to, as it were, clear the plate and allow for a new beginning. But this is not, again, what happened. This is precisely, if you want, the dream of Benjaminian divine violence. Siegfried is, for me, Wagner's idea of divine violence, in the sense of innocent violence, which ends with this uh, obscenity of the, of the violence, which sustains the law, and so on, and so on. Uh, so, what the result of this, then, is the birth of uh, Sigmund, who is Wotan's own son, but Wotan raises him not as his father, he sets him free. The idea is Sigmund should be the new, the new hero who will bring redemption to the world through his innocence outside of civilized rule of law. And here we get the only, here we then get the erotic option as another existential project. Sigmund Sieglinde, their the, the, uh, brother and sister, incestuous love, which is consummated, and this is the only true passionate affair in the opera. Uh, the love of Siegfried and Brunhilde is a ridiculous mismatch, it's clear. Uh, what happens here uh, is now, this is the first authentic ending. I claim Wagner's answer is there are two existential possibilities, and I think they are quite, I mean, 
I agree with Wagner here, to be very vulgar. One is a passionate love couple, but Wagner sees a problem. This is self-destructive. It destroys itself. But this is, this here you see Wagner at his most anti-totalitarian, even anti-fascist and so on. Ernst Bloch was right to remark, apropos of the scene you will see now, that if there were to be more people like Sigmund here, then German history would have turned otherwise. What happened here is that Wotan uh, uh, arranges so that Sigmund loses a fight and with that Sigmund, the hero, father of Siegfried, will die. Okay, I will not go into all the complications. What is crucial here is this beautiful scene where Brunhilde comes to Sigmund and tells him, you will die. I came here to prepare you for Valhalla. Valhalla, the seat of gods where you, after your death, if you die as a hero, you can lead a happy life, uh, flirting with all the, the, the Valkyrie there and so on and so on. Uh, and then it is, it's a beautiful love scene where Sigmund is there with his beloved who is just laying down totally exhausted, asleep, Sieglinde, uh, 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 and then Sigmund uh, says, no, if I cannot take that woman with me, I will not go to Valhalla. I prefer to remain mortal. This beautiful choice of a miserable mortal being is to me more than eternal joy among the gods. And then you have the comment of the shattered Brunhilde. So little do you value everlasting bliss. Is she, this woman, this poor woman, who, tired and sorrowful, lies limp in your lap? Is she everything to you? Do you think nothing less glorious? And so on and so on. Let's again praise to God that uh, things will work now. Uh, first, uh, you will see... This is another clip, very short. You will see here how in Valkyrie, that's another one, this is where the first time, I hope you will recognize it, that a redemption motive appears. It's very beautiful, just a, a, a sudden outburst by, Sieg, by Sieglinde, the mother of Siegfried. And then we will go to that scene. Okay, okay, let's hope it works. And this comes now. I hope it will. Yeah. Okay. She's inviting him, Sigmund, to Valhalla. She will say no. He will say no.
Now we go, now as a, okay, he dies, what, the next happens is that the, out of this incestuous union you have the son, the big hero, Siegfried. And now I come to my central point, the only authentic love <coughs> link was this one, between Sieglinde and Sigmund, but again, it's self-destructive, it cannot last, and what happens with the official love affair of the opera, Brunhilde, Siegfried, it's obviously a total mismatch. I cannot even see how anyone who simply looks at the opera can get the idea that this is the true big love. First, it's uh, Siegfried, Wagner does something, I think, wonderful, which the beauty is that it goes totally against the German ideology which portrays Siegfried, Siegfried as this powerful uh, Nietzschean uh, hero and so on. Wagner portrays Siegfried as a total jerk idiot, duped by everyone, tricked, betrayed, and so on, brutal. Just again, I hope this will work uh, if I do. Ah, no, now I learned how to. Yes. I'm sorry you don't get, I will simply talk in between so that we lost, don't lose time. The German works, this is Siegfried and obviously the Jewish figure. Al uh, no, sorry, it's not Alberic, it's Alberic Brothers. But again, notice the almost concentration time teachers and Siegfried's brutality. Basically, Siegfried's words are here. When I watch you standing, shuffling and trembling, uh, stooping, squinting and blinking, I long to seize you by your nodding neck and make an end of your obscene blinking and so on and so on. It's really a kind of a, you know, like uh, British National Party beating up, I don't know, a Pakistani boy or whatever. And again, all this stuff. So that, again, I cannot emphasize enough of how Wagner was aware of how uh, this uh, you know, this here, I think that Siegfried is also faced, Siegfried is a kind of a proto-figure of Nazi thug, of this, you know, this right-wing dream of pure brutality of revolutionary power which will clean, uh, clean the plate and so on and so on. This doesn't work. So what happens then effectively at the end? What kind of love do we get after all this? The key, I claim, is provided by so-called renunciation motive. And here one should really, it was uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss who got this point the first, one should read Wagner in a structural way, in the sense that one brings together, one, one reads in parallel what happens when the same motive is repeated. This, the so-called motive of renunciation, is repeated in the opera two, two times. Let's first get it here. Yeah. This is Rheingold, three Rhine maidens. Now you may see the motive of renunciation. 
The words here were nur wer der Mine macht versagt. Only the one who renounces the power of love can get the gold and so on. Now comes, now this is for Claude Lévi-Strauss, the proof that Wagner was a structuralist. Because here you, you will see, oh my god, this is so... the finale of Valkyrie, where you will see the same motif, but again, what for the words. Termine höchste Not, holiest loves, highest need. And this is, I think, the formula. The formula is to, to read the two together. You know, I repeat it. First, the motive was sung with the words, only the one who renounces the power of love. The second was holiest love, highest need. My, my solution is love's highest need is to renounce its own power. This is what Lacan calls symbolic castration. If one is to remain faithful to one's love, one should not elevate it into the direct focus of one's life. One should renounce its centrality. Love should not be posited as a direct goal. Love is an out. Love is an, a byproduct, something of an undeserved grace. The point is not that there are more important things than love. An authentic love encounter remains a kind of absolute point of reference of one's life. To put it in traditional terms, what makes one's life meaningful? The hard lesson learned by Brunhilde is that, precisely as such, love should not be a direct goal of one's life. True love is modest, like, by old example, the love of a couple in Marguerite Dirac novels. While the two lovers hold hands, they do not look into each other's eyes. They look together outwards into some third point, their common cause. Perhaps, I claim, there is no greater love than that of a revolutionary couple, where each of the two lovers is ready to abandon the other at any moment, if revolution demands it. They do not love each other less than the amorous couple bent on suspending all their terrestrial link in order to burn out in unconditional passion. If anything, they love each other more. And I think the finale of the twilight is thus Wagner's critical rejection of the three options staked in Wagner's three great other non-ring operas. I think Wagner was struggling all the time with this problem. Again, what kind of love makes <coughs> life meaningful. 
the Tristan solution it's really as if we get the three Kierkegaard versions in the three operas Tristan, Meistersinger, Parsifal. You know what happens in Tristan? Lovers burn out, die, disappear in death. That is the aesthetic option, love. In Meistersinger, we get the daily reality of marriage. True love, the incestuous one, must be renounced. You must find happiness in ordinary hard work, daily love, and uh, daily life, and so on and so on. Parsifal is a psychotic solution. You drop the woman. The woman disappears. You simply reject, reject love. In, kind of a, in a kind of a sacred gesture. And, uh, and I think that Wagner was somehow aware that none of these three versions really work. They do not cover the entire field. The choice is not either kind of a ascetic, self-enclosed male, or even female, brotherhood, sisterhood, a close incestuous circle, neither this nor fanatical couples self-destruction, but also not ordinary bourgeois life. Uh, what, uh, what Wagner got was this, again, this uh, basic idea that uh, that uh, I think it's basically a Christian, a Paulinian idea that uh, that in order for personal love to be operative, it has to be somehow transformed or supplemented by what Christianity would have called agape and what following Terry Eagleton I'm tempted to call political love, love of a collective. I think that this is what happens basically here, that we get literally, you remember in the last scene that you have seen just before silence, we get the collective. That love is, is, that love is needed more than anything. So I think, so I think that, uh, just the uh, concluding thought now, uh, I think that uh, usually Wagner's passage from Ring to Parsifal is read the way Nietzsche read it. Uh, Ring, that is to say, Twilight of Gods, all this is supposed to be still pagan, pre-Christian ethics, while in Parsifal we find a Christian Wagner. I think it's exactly the opposite. That if anything, it is in the Twilight of God that Wagner was close to Christianity. Not, of course, to any Christianity as an institution, but to this basic idea of collective love. Why exactly it, what happens in Parsifal is a return to paganism. That Parsifal is paradoxically an opera which does something extremely obscene. And again, Wagner was uh, aware of it. What happens in Parsifal is that... Uh, <coughs> is that uh, Christianity is reinscribed backwards into some kind of a pagan, pagan, <coughs> uh, pagan uh, into a kind of a pagan ritual. So, just to conclude, to amuse you, if you know the story of Parsifal, I think that in the same way that things can be done with Tristan to make it more effective, in the sense of, is all that doesn't come in the end, Tristan dies alone, I, uh, 
And again, I think there is a truth in it, because if you look at all Wagner's great love dialogues, they are basically, and Wagner was aware of it, uh, uh, a narcissistic fake in the sense of you don't really care about your partner. You just want to get immersed into, into your dream, which is why in Wagnerian love affairs, you never even look at your partner. Just somebody comes and you say, oh, for thousands of years I was waiting for you, and so on and so on. <laughs> the, the, the partner is just, you know, somebody who triggers it. Like, you remember, for example, in the first Wagnerian true opera, uh, uh, The Flying Dutchman. The moment the Dutchman comes, even before she sent us, she steams, she says, oh, here you are, I know you are here, I was waiting for you, and the same, the same way the other way around. It's not, it's not an encounter with it's not at all an encounter with otherness. So again, this is why I think that effectively Tristan dies alone. It's just his hallucination. It's all the dying together with him. So you know what happens in Parsifal. Parsifal, a young fool, then you have the kingdom, the great community, uh, the king is dying, confronts Parsifal, goes around to find a solution, confronts, enters the the source basically, Horhaus, Brodel, where he rejects the advances of Kundry, the beautiful sorceress, whatever, and then simply nothing happens, basically. He rejects the woman, thereby he is saved, he returns to the king and to the great kingdom and takes over and becomes a new ruler. But I think that, uh, I think that, uh, Something different should be, maybe, should be done here. I think that maybe we need today a new age Parsifal, where what happens is that in the Act II, uh, Kundri, the fatal woman, does succeed in seducing Parsifal, then they screw like crazy, then in Act Three, Parsifal comes to the Grail community, Montsalvat, together with Kundri, and says, enough of male chauvinism, we will rule as yin-yang in balance, as a love couple, and so on, and so on. This, is, this would be the truth of Parsifal, of Parsifal, I, uh, of, of Parsifal, I claim. And also, uh, uh, I think, again, it would be wonderful to do what I tried to do with Antigone, also with, uh, with Wagner's operas. For example, my idea would be to rewrite Tristan as a version of Postman Always Rings Twice. Tristan and Isolde decide that the only way for their love to survive is obviously to kill the king, Isolde's uh, husband. So in Act 3, they, the two of them stage all the spectacle with Tristan wounded, with Isolde sailing after him to trap the king, Marquain following them. When they have him alone there, they kill him, announcing to Mark's people that a tragic accident happened, and then Tristan takes over, uh, Tristan takes over uh, 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 the, new, uh, the new king, and so on and so on. I think that, that things like this help a lot to bring things to where they should be. So again, just to conclude now, my crucial point is that there is a Christ-like dimension in Brunhilde's death. But only in the precise sense that Christ's death marks the birth of the Holy Spirit, the community of believers linked by agape. No wonder one of Brunhilde's last words are, Rue, Rue, do God, die in peace, God. 
her act fulfills Wotan's wish to freely assume his inevitable death. What remains after the twilight is the human crowd silently observing the cataclysmic event. A crowd which, in this staging, is left staring into the spectators when the music ends. Everything now rests on them, without any guarantee in God, faith, or any other figure of the Big Other. It is up to them to act like the Holy Spirit. It is up to them to. It is up to them to. To uh, it is up to them to practice agape. Here is a quote from Sherot. How, in his notes towards his staging of Ring, how he describes the end of the Ring. The redemption motive is a message delivered to the entire world, but the orchestra is unclear and there are several ways of interpreting the message. Doesn't one hear it? Shouldn't one hear it with mistrust and anxiety? A mistrust which would match the boundless hope which this humanity nurses and which has always been at stake silently and invisibly in the atrocious battles which have torn human beings apart throughout the ring. The gods have lived, the values of their world must be reconstructed and reinvented. Men are there as if on the edge of a cliff. They listen tensely to the oracle which rumbles from the depths of the earth. So I think this is the greatness of this finale for me. It's not now we know all we need is love and everything is okay. This is love as a call to act. This is the moment it ends with, in a very inconclusive way, the ring. It's just an open space for action of the collective. Action grounded for the space for which was opened by Brunhilde's act. And again, I think it's a very, very beautiful, effective ending. All the previous options, all these heroics of uh, heroics of violent acts, rule of uh, rule of law, uh, capitalist profiteering, they are all dispensed with. All that remains is again the collective, the collective presented here, not in any sense of oh, we are the proletarians, we know, we just have to do what we have to do. In totally open, full of anxiety constellation, it's up to us. Like, you know, the story is over, but the true path starts here. So I think it's quite an achievement. And again, if we read more of Wagner in this way, then you can see it's not just beautiful music and so on and so on. It has a very precise structure. And uh, I still think that we, we live in Wagner's shadow. This is for me still the reason I did this in a very naive, confused way, I admit today. Is it's a very simple thing. One wouldn't expect maybe this from a, what I'm supposed to be a, a kind of a postmodern cynic who tells all the obscene jokes. This here, I think, I find the best answer you can find about why do we live? What's the meaning of life? It's simply that it's nice, private love, and so, but it's not enough. We need this passage to collective and. There is no conflict between the two, but also this is why, there would be another lesson here. This is why I'm totally opposed to this ridiculous pathetics of, uh, of the 68, you know, sexuality and politics. Like you must do something crazy in sexuality, screw together an orgy or whatever, sexual is political. No, I think, I think that on the contrary, it is only in a 
utopian, but not necessarily utopian, a communist collective that it will be possible to really keep apart public activity and love. The model of the couple that I would like to see here is, maybe I already mentioned it here, now the details are becoming public slowly. There was a love affair between Lenin and Inessa Armand. And you know what wonderful thing was discovered? I laughed when I read about it. That in order to, to, to ruin the rumors about this, well, in Stalinist photo books, you know, presenting the big figure of October Revolution and so on, they always consciously selected uh, a photo of Inessa Armand where she is much uglier than she really was. They always, like, just, you know, not to give another, but there was, and it's, uh, you know, there, there, she died, I think, in late 21, in some sanatorium in Caucasus, out of total exhaustion, and uh, there are some photos, these are these unpleasant photos of Lenin, which nobody wants to, I mean, of course, Stalinists didn't want to show them. One is that horrible one, Lenin, just before his death, on a wheelchair with a totally mad expression. But this is an even more tragic photo. I would like to use it if verse or whoever will allow me to. They discovered now a photo of Lenin at, they brought her to Moscow at Inessa Armand's funeral. She was totally ruined. It was over. It was even more than all those attacks. But you know, that's the beauty. He didn't make any public spectacle out of it. It is what decent people did. It was an absolute love. Nadezhda Krupskalevin's official wife uh, stayed with him, but gracefully seeing this is true love. Withdrew, and incidentally, you know that now, this is how this became clear. You know when Nadezhda Krupskaya in the early 30s, just before her death, made some trouble to Stalin. When Stalin made that famous remark, don't talk too much, otherwise we will find another wife for Lenin. You will no longer be Lenin's widow. This wasn't an empty threat. The threat was, we will bring out Inessa Armand. Now we will rewrite it a little bit. But you see what I mean? I mean, but my point here is that, uh, for me, another aspect of communist society, again, it is not that, you know, somehow sexuality and politics will be the same in the sense of the politics will be one big bang, one big collective screwing or whatever. No, I think the beauty is precisely to keep this apart. You work for the cause and then, again, that's for me true love, modest in the shadow. We work for the cause, the lady is here, none of that. I look into your eyes, I, I forget all the world. That's nightmare, that's psychosis for me. No, we work for the cause, then just briefly our hands touch or whatever, and we are aware, you know, we work for the cause, but the truly, it must be, it must be a modest byproduct. In this way, again, you can avoid, and so I think, again, that not only communism for me is not this universal orgy where work is fuck and fuck is work and everything is one big happy orgy. Only in communism, love will be, love will really become what it should be. A separate radical idiosyncrasy of two people out of this. And I think that again, Wagner was moving in this beautiful dimension. Because again, the only two authentic moments in Ring are the love of Sigmund Sieglinde and, at the end, this moment of self-sacrifice, collectivity and so on. I don't know where you are, for me still, that's the closest I can come to 
the meaning of life, and so on. I think we may laugh at Wagner and so on, but I think he did it. He wasn't as stupid as it may appear. I'm sorry, it was a little bit confused. I was too personal today. Tomorrow we go back to old cynicism, political jokes, and so on, all that, that you expect. Tomorrow it's, uh, sorry, just to give you a hint, it's a very respectful dialogue with a guy who is now getting fashionable in the United States, but he's not a total idiot. Deepesh Chakra Bhakti, no? Uh, uh, in a very friendly way, I want to engage in very friendly polemics with him. Because he tries to prove he is basically against even openly, okay, why not? Marx's theory of universality of capital. He plays this game of almost Heideggerian with explicit reference to Heidegger. That if there is a lesson of late capitalism, it is that there is no universal capitalism in each culture. Capitalism is embedded, integrated in a specific way in this specific context, like his cases, India, and so on, and so on. And I will try to, again, very respectfully counter, uh, uh, counter, counteract, counteract this. I think that capitalism has a quite more radical universal dimension.